Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. From the wilds of Connecticut, this is Obscure Season 2, Frankenstein. I am your host, your friend, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer-in-chief and literal Georgianologist, Michael Ian Black. You'll notice I did not say I am in the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library because I am not. I am instead, I have decamped to another location within the short-lived Black estate. I have decamped to my front steps because it is a gorgeous day here in the wilds of Connecticut, mid-70s, mild. The weather is calm. The breeze is light. My dogs have accompanied me out here. They are both sunning themselves. Oli, the big lab, squash. I don't even know what he is. Uh, They're sitting in the mulch sunning themselves. It was quite a process to move all of my gear from the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library out to the front steps. It took my team several hours to get everything loaded up on hand dollies and moved piece by piece from one wing of the manse to the next. I mean, you know, it's a lot of microphones and it was really just the microphone. I just took my microphone and my little Zoom recorder and came out here. So here I am. I mean, it's it's. Just, I'm I'm sitting in shade. I'm watching a bumblebee flit among the berries, uh, probably similar berries to what the big buddy is planning on eating when he goes to South America with the she buddy. Yeah, I mean, everything's starting to grow. It's lovely. It's blooming. And of course, my thoughts now turn to, you know, the next process in my leaving of the state of. Connecticut thoughts are with moving companies and what tchotchkes I am bringing. And tchotchkes, as you know, is different than chachi. Chachi was on happy days. Tchotchkes are memorabilia. 
and such that you collect along the way. So I'm, you know, thinking about tchotchkes and which books I'm bringing in, which I am not, and whether the ping pong table will come with me or whether it will not. Um, I'm going to let you know right now. It's not coming with me. I was going to save it for the end of the episode, but fuck it. I decided to just let you know now. I mean, why keep you in suspense? You know, there's already so much suspense going on right now with Victor Frankenstein about to depart for merry old England with Clerval. He's going there to talk to uh, the scientists, you know, the natural philosophers over there who have been working on material that is apparently relevant to to the thing that he's already done. I don't know why he has to go. He's looking for an excuse. He's looking for an excuse to procrastinate the creation of the she-buddy. And so, you know, he he said, oh, yeah, I'm going to go to England. I'm going to, let me, let me talk to some, some fellows probably all fellows, let's be honest. And then I'll come back, I'll build the thing, or maybe I'll build, I'm, I'll build the she-buddy there. And when I come back, I'll marry my sister Elizabeth and all will be fine. You know, he's, he's, making, he's making lemonade out of lemons here, you know? He's got to do this detested task. He doesn't want to do it, but he's got to do it. He promised Big Buddy he would do it. Big Buddy had said, I'm going to go to the Amazon with my she-buddy. If you just do this one terrible thing and Victor Frankenstein's like, all right, fine. And then he's going to marry Elizabeth when he comes back. So just like um, me, Victor Frankenstein is getting ready to go. Let's begin reading. I now made arrangements for my journey. But one feeling haunted me, which filled me with fear and agitation. During my absence, I should leave my friends unconscious of the existence of their enemy and unprotected from his attacks, exasperated as he might be by my departure. But he had promised to follow me wherever I might go, and would he not accompany me to England? Well, we've already said, I mean, he, you know, he, might, he might swim the channel. He can do anything. He's super buddy. He can leap over. We already seen he can leap over uh, tall mountains in a single bound. We know he's faster than regular people. So he's faster than a speeding bullet or, you know, metaphorically speaking. Why can't he swim the English channel? He's super buddy. He can do anything. So maybe he'll come to England. This imagination was dreadful in itself, but soothing in as much as it supposed the safety of my friends. I was agonized with the idea of the possibility that the reverse of this might happen. But through the whole period during which I was the slave of my creature, I allowed myself to be governed by the impulses of the moment, and my present sensations strongly intimated that the fiend would follow me and exempt my family from the danger of his machinations." I mean, he basically said that, right? He said, you know, I'm going to leave you alone. I'm going to, you know, build my chi buddy. And if you don't do it, I'll kill everything and everybody you know, right? I'll destroy the entire world. But if you do it, like, we're good. We're good, man. We got no beef, man. Come on. Why can't we all just get along, man? That's what the big buddy said. I know I did some bad things, but I'm changed, man. Right? Every prisoner's lament. Yeah, I killed the guy, but I've learned the error of my ways. But if you don't do what I say, I will kill you and everybody you know and love. It was in the latter end of August that I again quitted 
my native country. My journey had been my own suggestion, and Elizabeth, therefore, acquiesced. But she was filled with disquiet at the idea of my suffering away from her, the inroads of misery and grief. It had been her care which provided me a companion in Clerval, and yet a man is blind to a thousand minute circumstances which call forth a woman's sedulous attention. She longed to bid me hasten my return. A thousand conflicting emotions rendered her mute as she bade me a tearful, silent farewell. Goodbye. Goodbye, Victor Frankenstein. I love you, and I cannot wait for your return so we may wed. Take Henry with you, and Godspeed to merry old England. This is me just, I'm improvising as Elizabeth now, and it occurred to me that maybe you thought I was quoting from the book, but I wasn't. I was just improvising as Elizabeth in the voice of a kind of rheumatic older gentleman. Goodbye. 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 I threw myself into the carriage that was to convey me away, hardly knowing whither I was going and careless of what was passing around. I remember, I mean, I guess the scenery, I first read that as some sort of uh, like virus, but I don't think that's what he meant. I think he just meant the scenery. I remembered only, and it was with a bitter anguish that I reflected on it, to order that my chemical instruments should be packed to go with me. Filled with dreary imaginations, I passed through many beautiful and majestic scenes, but me eyes were fixed and unobserving. I liked that it's written me eyes. It's a strange little detail, uh, and, it, and it has a kind of wistful quality to it, doesn't it? I passed through many beautiful and majestic scenes, but me eyes were fixed and unobserving. I could only think of the bourne of my travels and the work which was to occupy me whilst they endured. Um, one little clue that's interesting, I mean, barely interesting, but worth mentioning, I suppose, is that it was with a, with a bitter anguish that he remembered to order that his chemical instruments should be packed to go with me. You'll recall that when Victor Frankenstein describes how he made the Big Buddy, it's very, very vague. There's not much in the way of description other than gathering body parts, somehow putting them together, and then I feel like there was the application of electricity and then the big buddy was alive. It takes pl- it takes about a page and a half, but there was no mention to my memory of any sort of magic chemicals or elixirs being applied to the unanimated corpse or the unanimated creation that was to become big buddy. So now we have our first idea of, you know, some sort of scientific dalliance that he may have undertook. There are chemicals involved. And of course, that makes sense to us. Why wouldn't there be chemicals involved? I hope they're smoking. I hope they're swirling. I hope they're of many hues. I want them to be the chemicals of the movies, you know? Beakers full of red liquids, noxious fumes emanating from them, watering the eyes and such. That's what I want them to be. And of course, Mary Shelley doesn't go into any detail about this because she has no idea. That's not me putting her down. I mean, it's an an impossible thing to do. You can't, you know, you can't, you can't make the dead come alive. It's certainly not the 
never was alive. You know, these individual parts never were alive. So, I mean, they were, you know, conjoined with, with other parts and that total thing was alive. But, you know, the individual organs, I, I, I'm confusing myself. I think you understand what I'm saying. And I think I'm saying it very well, despite your protestations to the contrary. Though you may disagree with me, please do so silently and without rebuke, because I cannot take it. After some days spent in listless indolence, during which I traversed many lengths, I arrived at Strasbourg, where I waited two days for Clerval. He came. Alas, 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 how great was the contrast between us. He was alive to every new scene, joyful when he saw the beauties of the setting sun, and more happy when he beheld it rise and recommence a new day. He pointed out to me the shifting colors of the landscape and the appearances of the sky. This is what it is to live, he cried. Now I enjoy existence. But you, my dear Frankenstein, wherefore are you desponding and sorrowful? In truth, I was occupied by gloomy thoughts, and neither saw the descent of the evening star nor the golden sunrise reflected in the Rhine. And you, my friend, would be far more amused with the journal of Clerval, who observed the scenery with an eye of feeling and delight than in listening to my reflections, I, a miserable wretch, haunted by a curse that shut up every avenue to enjoyment. So again, a rare reference to Walton when he says, and you might, my friend, would be far more amused with the journal of Clerval, right? You know, Clerval saying, hey, this is great. Oh, we're having a wonderful time looking at the sun reflecting off the Rhine. Uh, you know, it'd be a fun, lively, gay tale. But uh, Victor Frankenstein, you know, his journal is full of misery and dejection and, you know, navel gazing and contemplation. We had agreed to descend the Rhine in a boat from Strasbourg to Rotterdam, whence we might take shipping for London. During this voyage, we passed many willowy islands and saw several beautiful towns. We stayed a day at Mannheim, and Squash is, is looking at, so Oli has gone into the house. Squash has taken a toy, a doggy toy, and is smiling from ear to ear, clearly anticipating Oli's return back outside to the front step, after which he will almost certainly attack the Labrador. This is what happens. Squash is a tiny little thing, but what he likes to do is lay in wait and then attack the much bigger dog. And I see him, he's, so Oli has gone back inside, is now sitting on the rug because he knows Squash is waiting to attack him. Squash, his attention is fixed on the front door, which is open, and where Oli is, waiting for the other dog to return. Squash has now uh, put his dog toy in his mouth, is shaking it uh, vigorously to entice Oli. Oli is not biting uh, Squash, his enthusiasm has not waned. He is staring fixedly at the front door. He's just now made a little whine, like, why don't you come out and play with me? Uh, Oli has his head down between his paws inside the house. He's not going anywhere. And Squash, his face, oh, now he's growling. I don't know. You probably can't hear that, but he just went, oh, because he's saying, Oli, please come out. Please come out. Please play with me. Oh, I mean, the optimism that Squash has right now is palpable and distressing because Oli is not coming out. I think Squash has finally given up. 
or at least is in the process of giving up. He has sneezed, his attention has returned to Oli in the front, and I will go back to my book. The course of the Rhine beyond, below Mayence becomes much more picturesque. The river descends rapidly and winds between hills, not high, but steep. And, uh, and you know who loves, oh, oh, now here comes Squash. He's now walking towards me, trotting towards me with the dog toy in his mouth to show Oli that, look, I have the dog toy, which in this case is a giraffe, uh, a kind of cartoonish looking giraffe stuffed thing, which is, if you recall, a reference to Pets.com commercials, which I used to do, the very first one of which the Pets.com sock puppet, that was his name, said, Stuffed things! I love stuffed things! Squeaky toys, new collars, leashes! Oh wow, he's got a stuffed thing! I love stuffed things! This is the happiest day of my life! Come on, jump! Jump! Got it! Pets.com, because pets can't drive. The river descends rapidly and winds between hills, not high but steep, and of beautiful forms. We saw many ruined castles standing on the edges of precipices, surrounded by black woods, high and inaccessible. This part of the Rhine, indeed, presents a singularly variegated landscape. In one spot you view rugged hills, ruined castles, overlooking tremendous precipices, with the dark Rhine rushing beneath, and on the sudden turn of a promontory, flourishing vineyards with green sloping banks and a meandering river, and populous towns occupy the scene. Okay, so we're, uh, you know, we're a little bit bifurcated in our scenery here for reasons that uh, seem obvious to me, but maybe only because I have thought about this. Uh, And I'll explain it in a second when we return here on Obscure. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. back and obscure and uh, I'm seated on the front stoop just like you know and do the right thing 
You know, everybody hangs out on the front stoop, except I'm in Connecticut and there's no pizza place nearby. And I was just describing the dualistic nature of the scenery here. They're on the Rhine, you know, and, and, and it's variegated landscape. And, you know, when, when I first began the book, I would have said boring, boring, boring. And it is kind of boring. But I think the idea here is that it's reflecting the variegated moods between Victor Frankenstein and Clerval. Clerval here is the flourishing vineyard with green sloping banks and populous towns. And uh, Victor Frankenstein's nature is ruined castles overlooking tremendous precipices, right? You know, they're, they're, they, she's just expressing somewhat romantically how nature reflects our personal natures. And, you know, normally, let me just say something. Let me just think about this for a second. Because, you know, normally I would dismiss that. I would say, you know, because I'm a, I'm a 21st century man, so to speak, and I'm closer to a kind of, you know, amoral, naturalistic universe that does not give a hoot about me one way or the other. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look at it from a slightly different point of view right now. And I'm going to say, maybe there is something as I'm out here in nature, right? And it's, as I said, it's a gorgeous day. It's sunny. The breeze is light. The dogs are chipper. By the way, Squash has now gone into the house to attack Oli. He has given up on Oli coming out, and he is now wrestling with Oli, but Oli is ignoring him. This uh, episode began with me coming out to nature. Why? Because not that nature is reflecting my mood, but in a sense, my mood is reflecting nature. We see in nature that which we want to see, right? We look for signs from the heavens. So maybe there's something here. Maybe the symbology, I've always looked at it wrong, that nature, romantically speaking, reflects man, but I think maybe man reflects nature. Maybe that's a sort of more mature way to look at the symbolism in works of art. And I never thought about it that way before. You know, look, I know, I state the obvious, um, but I do so with the convictions of somebody who's just thinking about things for the first time and thinks he's made some brilliant discovery. That's who I am. But maybe the reason I'm out in nature is because my mood demands it. My good mood demands the good mood of nature. Nature complies. Here I am. We traveled at the time of the vintage and heard, which I assume means uh, when the grapes are ready, and heard the song of the laborers as we glided down the stream. Even I depressed in mind, and my spirits continually agitated by gloomy feelings, even I was pleased. I lay at the bottom of the boat, and as I gazed on the cloudless blue sky, I seemed to drink in a tranquility to which I had long been a stranger. And if these were my sensations, who can describe those of Henry? He felt as if he had been transported to fairyland and enjoyed a happiness seldom tasted by man. I have seen, he said, the most beautiful scenes of my own country. I have visited the lakes of Lucerne and Uri, where the snowy mountains descend almost perpendicularly to the water, casting black and impenetrable shades which would cause a gloomy and mournful appearance were it not for the most verdant islands that relieve the eye by their gay appearance. It's a hell of a sentence, Henry, and then he's not done because there's a semicolon, not a period. 
I have seen this lake agitated by a tempest. So he's describing really here the nature of Frankenstein. I've seen all this. When the wind tore up whirlwinds of water and gave you an idea of what the water spout must be on the great ocean, and the waves dash with fury the base of the mountain, where the priest and his mistress were overwhelmed by an avalanche, and where their dying voices are still said to be heard amid the pauses of the nightly wind. You'd think that would be the end of the sentence, but it's not. We have another semicolon. I have seen the mountains of La Vallée and the Pies de Vaux, but this country, Victor, pleases me more than all those wonders. End of sentence. The mountains of Switzerland are more majestic and strange, but there is a charm in the banks of this divine river that I never before saw equaled. Look at that castle which overhangs yon precipice, and that also on the island, almost concealed amongst the foliage of those lovely trees. And now that group of laborers coming from among their vines, and that village half hid in the recess of the mountain. Oh, surely the spirit that inhabits and guards this place has a soul more in harmony with man than those who pile the glacier or retire to the inaccessible peaks of the mountains of our own country. Right, right. He's saying here there is balance. Here with you and I, Victor and Henry, Vic and Hank, that old soft shoe team, he Light on his feet, he the heavy stomper. Between the two of us, we have everything we need. We perfectly reflect the variegated duality of nature, you and I. Yes, I've seen Switzerland. I've seen where the peaks are ferocious and people pile on glaciers. I've seen that cold side and it has its own terrible beauty. But this, this is nothing like that. It is better here, here in merry, merry Deutschland. I'll continue. Clerval, beloved friend, even now it delights me to record your words and to dwell on the praise of which you are so eminently deserving. He was a being formed in the very poetry of nature. His wild and enthusiastic, enthusiastic imagination was chastened by the sensibility of his heart. His soul overflowed with ardent affections, and his friendship was of that devoted and wondrous nature that the worldly-minded teach us to look for only in the imagination. How much was Clerval like Byron, I wonder? I mean, obviously, I don't know anything about Shelley or Byron, but clearly the relationship between Victor Frankenstein and Henry Clerval seems modeled, I think, after Byron and Shelley, and I might not have thought that, except that I know that, you know, they were they were they 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 weren't just passing acquaintances; they were dear friends. And it seems like maybe, you know, she's the you know Mary's the Elizabeth in all of this. Byron and Shelley are going tromping off in the foothills of Switzerland while she's in the cabin writing those two boon companions, and you know, maybe Clerval's Byron. His soul overflowed with ardent affections, and his friendship was of that devoted and wondrous nature that the worldly-minded teach us to look for only in the imagination. But even human sympathies were not sufficient to satisfy his eager mind. The scenery 
of external nature, which others regard only with admiration, he loved with ardor. And now it looks like there's going to be a quote from Wordsworth's Tintern Abbey. And I know that because there's a little asterisk, and that's it's, a, it's the author's footnote. And this is from Tintern Abbey. The sounding cataract haunted him like a passion. The tall rock, the mountain, and the deep and gloomy wood, their colors and their forms were then to him an appetite, a feeling, and a love that had no need of a remoter charm by thought supplied or any interest unborrowed from the eye. So it's the same thing that I've been saying. Look, I mean, it's weird. This just goes with my whole theory that you always find in any work of art that which you're seeking, which is why when you're out in nature, you find what you are seeking. The human mind itself looks for patterns and it looks to be ref- it looks for reflections of itself. So that's the whole thing with nature. And she's kind of, and, and Wordsworth is kind of saying this, right? The, uh, the sounding cataract haunted him like a passion. The tall rock, the mountain, the deep gloomy wood, their colors and their forms were then to him an appetite, a feeling, and a love. It's all right there. It doesn't, it doesn't need anything other than what it is. But the same person might look at it differently. There have been times in my life where I have been disgusted by the bright, sunny day. I'm thinking particularly of when I was living in Los Angeles and the oppressive sunshine mirrored the oppression that I felt uh, by the, 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 the suffocating industry in which I was surrounded with, surrounded by. I think I've said this before on this podcast or maybe not, but when you're out there in LA and you know, I'm, I'm thinking about it again because as I contemplate my own move, it was almost to Los Angeles. Thankfully, it is not going to be that, but I'm reminded again, of the unending days of sunshine and how miserable they were for a young man embarking on the next step of his career. Because every day where the weather was 70s and mild, as it is right now, was a further reminder that I had no impediments to my own, um, you know, hoped for success, that I should be out there in the world trying to make things happen. And really very little was happening. And what was happening was dissatisfying to me. I longed for a return to the colder climates of the Northeast, where gloom actually lifted my mood. But at the time, of course, I was clinically depressed. So we seek in nature that which we find in ourselves. Might as well end here as I am out in nature. I have in my view Martha's garden, which has sprung to life. The peonies are in bud right now. Um, It's my favorite time of the year, actually, for garden, maybe a couple weeks hence, but when things are sort of big and growing and about to burst forth, but not quite in their full lascivious fleshiness, you know, they're still still kind of coming up. Once everything blooms, it gets kind of, it gets to be too much. The flowers start to droop, you know, the plants bend down. Right now, they're all striving for the sun. They're striving in new growth, and it's sort of delightful. And, you know, it's optimism. That's what they're feeling. And I'm kind of feeling it myself, you know. As I embark on this new chapter in my life, you're embarking on the next chapters in your own lives, um, and we're all 
you know, looking forward to putting the last X amount of months slash year and change behind us, new growth is springing up everywhere. It was a delightful decision to come out here and record. Of course, now I have to get the team to trundle everything back up inside, and that's going to take hours, if not days. So, um, you know, break time for them is over. Um, Guys, come on. Break time for you is over. You need to trundle all the equipment back into the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library. They're looking at me with sour, sour faces. They do not want their afternoons bespoiled by my demands, but I am a taskmaster and what must be done must be done. So I will let them get to their work. I will close and uh, I will see you next time on another optimistic episode of Obscure. But until then, I wish you adieu. Obscure Season 2 Frankenstein is produced by Robin Lynn, Jennifer Brennan, Mary Shimkin, and myself here in the wilds of Connecticut where I record and elsewhere. Original music by Craig Wedgren. If you enjoy this podcast, please go to Apple Podcasts and drop in some stars for us. Why don't you write a kind review? Why don't you? It helps. How does it help? I have no idea, but it makes me feel good. 